you're struggling with pelvic floor dysfunction issues, this episode of Ironing Out the Wrinkles is a must listen. I'm your host, Ros McMaster. We'll be discussing incontinence, constipation, defecatory difficulties, and pelvic pain, which are common pelvic floor issues that can be very distressing and often cause suffering and social isolation. These issues can affect individuals of all ages and genders. However, they're more common in adults over 65, with a prevalence rate of 20 to 50% in women and 5 to 25% in men over the age of 50. To help us answer questions about pelvic floor disorders, their causes and treatment options, Dr. Chris Gillespie, a specialist colorectal surgeon, joins us on today's episode. Dr. Gillespie has a special interest in functional issues with the bowel and practices at Marta Private Hospital in Brisbane. He has also set up a multidisciplinary service called the Queensland Pelvic Floor Centre in Bowen Hills, Brisbane, to provide care to people with troublesome bowel or pelvic floor issue. Dr. Chris Gillespie, hello and welcome. Thanks, Roz, and thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I was just saying before we hit the record button that uh, I always wonder why people would get into this field, but after yes. doing a little bit of research, it is fascinating. Uh, it, it is. I mean, the, it is It is incredible how common pelvic floor disorders are. Uh, there's, there's people who know about them, and then there's, there's actually a huge people amount of people out there who have some symptoms or some kind of trouble and, and don't realise that it's related to the to the pelvic floor. Um, it's a fairly loose term, the pelvic floor. It sort of summarises, I sort of describe it as, as the whole pelvis. It's a it's a really important part of our body. And, um, you know, overall, I think poorly understood. Um, you know, we we understand it well, but, but, um, but you know, in general, it's poorly understood. And um, a, a lot of people are suffering out there and, and there are things that can be done to help these people. You know, it, I mean, I treat, you know, all kinds of other things. I treat bowel cancer and serious life-threatening conditions and, and all that, and that's satisfying. But but to be honest, I, I probably get more satisfaction out of treating someone who's suffered from for years and years with terrible symptoms and, and you're able to turn things around and make their life better. So it's, it's yeah. actually satisfying to be a part of. That brings us really a nice segue into my first question. As a colorectal surgeon, could you explain the intricate functions of the pelvic floor and its importance in the body's anatomy and physiology? Is it possible to make that not a huge question? Yeah. No. <laughs> like how much time have we got? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly how many hours have you got? Oh, look, I mean, uh, the way I'd, I'd – I'd probably summarise it. So, so pelvic floor is, is a loose term. I mean, really, when I talk about the pelvic floor, what, what I guess I sort of mean is the muscles that um, that we have at the bottom of our pelvis. These muscles are really important, but they're only a part of of the entire system. These muscles are really important, and and they help to control the function of our bowel, uh, the function of our bladder, uh, and sexual function. And and to to make things simple, the way we were, we were created was that each muscle actually affects all of the organs. So, for example, the muscle that opens your bowel is the same muscle that opens your bladder. But depending on what other muscles are doing, you might open your bowel or you might open your bladder. It's actually very difficult. I don't know if you've ever tried to open both your bowel and bladder at the same time, and that's because of the way that the the muscles are set up. And so that that that's that's a part of the system and, and those muscles are controlled really by our subconscious brain right now your pelvic floor and my pelvic floor are active uh, there's muscles that are working that we don't have to think about we've got too much else to think about in life than our pelvic floor the way i describe it to patients is is it's a bit like your breathing muscle your breathing muscles working all the time. We don't have to think about it. It just works. Sometimes if you have, for example, severe anxiety and a panic attack, if you've ever had a panic attack, uh, you'll know that your, your muscles start breathing out of control and you're trying to stop them and they can't. And, and your pelvic floor muscles are a little bit the same. They're really under subconscious control. There's constantly talk happening between that part of your body and your brain stem. Uh, in terms of sampling, in terms of uh, preventing leakage, and um, and hence 
severe anxiety and and um, psychological distress can sometimes manifest in that part of our body. Um, that's where our sexual organs are. Uh, we we can go into protective mode and we can protect ourselves when we have psychological distress. Uh, and then, of course, you know that goes into sexual abuse as well. Uh, we we protect ourselves in that part of our body, and those muscles become hypertonic, trying to protect you. But at the same time, it can affect your ability to use your bowels and your ability to use your bladder. The re- the rectum, if we want to talk about the rectum, the way I just I talk about the rectum as I as I say. The rectum is a reservoir for storing stool. It's the last part of your gastrointestinal tract. I say it's the most important part of your of your gastrointestinal tract. And um, the rectum really, its job is to store stool. When it gets really full, uh, it needs to tell you that you might need to start looking for a toilet. And if you're not if you're not near a toilet, we can hold on. That's a great thing to be able to do, of course. Importantly, it's also got to be able to empty and it's got to be able to empty satisfactorily. When we go to the toilet, we actually don't just empty our rectum. We, we empty our rectum and about half of our large intestine in one go. There's this mass movement uh, which, which occurs in the colon where we push usually once a day. We push all our stool right down into the last part of our rectum and then mechanically our body is able to take what's inside us and put it outside us, and that's and and that's really a subconscious maneuver. We don't really know what we do uh, when we go to the toilet. We sit in the toilet, and, and and something happens, and we don't really know how we learn to do it either. We don't sort of sit and stare at our parents on the toilet. And <laughs> that way. We just uh, just sort of pick it up uh, in, in childhood in some way, and then we don't leak in between going to the toilet. And everyone takes these th- these things for granted. We just think it's normal, and it's only when you can't do these things or, or the functions don't work so well that you start realising what an amazing system we have. And the same with our bladder. You know, our bladder is able to empty fully. Um, we're able to hold on if we need to and we don't normally leak urine. Leakage is, is always abnormal. It is never normal to leak urine. It is never normal to leak stool. Uh, it's never normal to have to rush. It's normal to be able to hold on. And so, you know, sometimes we we sort of fight this myth that, that it's okay for a woman to leak urine later in life. It's actually abnormal. It's not normal to do that. Oh. And, um, and and there are treatment options and ways we can try to improve the function. We can't always cure people. And mm. I say, sometimes say to people, I can't, I'm not going to make you the best poor in the world or best weird <laughs> in the world. But if we can make your symptoms better so that um, you're not so bothered by this problem, uh, because, you know, the, when people are bothered by these problems, it, it can be utterly devastating. It can affect every aspect of, of someone's life. If you're worried about having an accident in your, in your underwear uh, or your bowels working without you being able to stop them, you're going to stop going and having that cup of coffee with your friends or with your family. Um, you're going to, it's going to affect your ability to work. It affects, then affects your your, your relationships you lead, you get marriage breakdown, uh, even suicide. Um, oh my goodness! Severe depression. Um, so, so it, it is. Um, you know, people are highly, highly distressed when they have these problems, and um, that's why it's nice to be able to help them because you can really, you know, really impact. Someone's. Yeah, really change lives. You can. You can. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's really interesting. I, I think you've answered half a dozen questions just in that. But oh, <laughs> anyway, but that's, yeah, that's nice to know. I, I really had no idea just how big an impact it had on people or how bad it could be. I remember when I was a little girl, I was in the supermarket with my grandfather and I looked down and he had uh, wet his pants. Mm. And, you know, as children do, I very loudly said, oh, Grandpa, what happened? And, oh, I just broke a bottle in my pocket. Uh, And for some reason, I've never forgotten about that. But, you know, Mm. as an adult, I look back and think how embarrassed he must have been by that. So just terrible. Yeah, it's it's one of the things people talk about about the most is is embarrassment. And, um, you know, there's there's nothing worse. And, And despite... The problem actually being quite common, people just don't don't want to talk about it. A lot of people, you know, they say to me, "Am, am I the only person with this?" And I'm like, "No, no, this is actually incredibly common." They sort of people feel like they're the only person in the world with these kind of problems, 
but but they're, they're, it's incredibly common. Unfortunately, I mean, we see people of all ages. You know, I see people, I see teenagers with these problems, people in their 20s, but we do see more elderly people, uh, usually, as you say, above 50 or 60, and predominantly females. And the reason for that is that one, not the only but one of the most common causes is um, complication, is obstetric trauma. So traumatic vaginal delivery, of course, men don't have babies, so that, you know, they're excluded from that group. We do see men, we absolutely do see men with these problems, but we see more females. So around about 80% of our patients are female, about 20% male. And we see females who haven't had babies as well uh, because um, there are other causes uh, of um pelvic floor dysfunction aside from obstetric trauma. So, you know, like I was talking about before, people who, the, 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 this complex and amazing ability to empty our bowels, it can be disrupted. So, so some people, they, they never quite learn how to poo properly and they exert excessive pressure and they strain and they strain and they may not even be aware of it because we don't all poo in front of each other. We, <laughs> it's a very behavioural thing. Um, you know, it's incredibly behavioural. In fact, you know, you get people who say, I just want to poo in my toilet at home and they will avoid public toilets. They'll never, ever go to a public toilet. They'll tell you a story about how they never use the toilets at school. It might have been because they were being bullied about it or it might just be because they didn't. They felt uncomfortable. And the classic story they'll always tell you is that they'll, they'll go away on school camp and they'll go away for a week and they just won't poo. They'll just hold on and hold on and cause all kinds of damage to themselves and then just wait till they get home so they can use their own their own toilet. You know, our own idea of what's normal is um is not very accurate. You know, I saw I saw a lady recently and she told me that she only pooed once a week and she was about 25 and she said it wasn't until she got married and she saw her husband going to the toilet every day and she said what's wrong with you why why are you going to the toilet? <laughs> So often, and he said, "No, no, I'm the one who's normal. You're the one who's abnormal." And it was only then she realised she actually, she actually had a problem. So, um, you know, yeah. our, our own perception of how well we're doing things is not, is not very accurate. And 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 some people over years and years just exert all this pressure, strain and strain and strain, and then I see them three or four decades later, and they've done a huge amount of damage, stretched things out. And um, they end up with the same net result as obstetric trauma, which is a more, you know, a more rapid um, progression. Yes. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, well, we'll get more into each of those, actually, because I've, you know, got questions about how often is the normal amount, because you don't actually need to go every day either, do you? But let, let's start with how does the pelvic floor actually change as we age, yep. you know, and... We know that uh, pelvic floor disorders are common occurrences with ageing. Did yeah, I get the absolutely. statistics right in the beginning there? Yeah, no, no, they, they were very accurate and that it's it's incredibly common. I guess, you know, measuring this is actually quite difficult because a lot of people, there are a lot of people out there who sort of think they're normal but end up with a problem and then they realise actually for a lot of the time they weren't quite normal. So I think I think we definitely grossly underestimate the um the prevalence of this problem but you know to give you an idea the uh, fecal incontinence is one of the three most common reasons for an elderly person to be admitted to a rest home a nursing home so really uh, yeah 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 so it just wow. gives you an idea of the of the impact because they just struggle to cope at home and they end up in a nursing home just because of 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 fecal incontinence so but but oh. as we age i mean the the two if you look at pelvic organ prolapse Pelvic organ prolapse really just means that the supportive connective tissue that holds all of our organs inside our pelvis has become stretched. And so when we when we walk around, in particular, when we push to go to the toilet, things move lower than they should. And, and sometimes things even start poking outside. So, um, you know, we understand that with vaginal prolapse, uh, where part of um, what's inside us ends up outside us. Uh, as a colorectal surgeon, I see the th the same thing with rectal prolapse, where um, our rectum, which is normally inside our anus, ends up outside the anus, and that that may occur when someone's going to the toilet, it, it pops out and goes back in, or it may be that that it starts, it pops out and even starts staying outside. 
And so the, the, the animals, if you look at the animal kingdom, basically the animals that end up getting this problem are bipeds, in other words, two-legged animals, so us and the apes. And, and, and the reason for that is that we spend a lot of time upright, so we've got gravity against us. So it's far more common uh, in, in animals that are upright. And so really with, with time and then loss of collagen, which is an age-related problem, and that's precipitated, of course, by menopause as well in females, and then gravity, and then over time just straining and straining and straining. So we strain when we go to the toilet, but we also strain when we lift up objects, when we do heavy work, and, and this is just cumulative over time. And over time, that, that stretching gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, you might have someone who, for example, started off with some obstetric trauma in their 20s or in their 30s, but then there was no initial problem. But then over time, over decades later, activities of daily life, a bit of heavy work, a bit of straining, pushing a bit too hard perhaps when they're on the toilet leads to further prolapse and that loss of supports leads to worse function. And the organs which are trying to do their job are just not able to do their job so well because they've lost their supports and the mechanics, the beautiful mechanics that we have in our pelvis are affected. And um, so hence it's more common in, um, in elderly people. Oh, wow. Okay. So when, when you say heavy lifting too, you know, all these people that are doing these heavy weights at the gym, that's, that's going to have a long-term effect. Yeah. Look, it, it, it does. So there is a bit of a craze at the moment. If you look at the, you know, younger population and people going to the gym and getting more and more into, into lifting heavy weights, the things that I find that are particularly problematic are people who do a lot of squats and people who do a lot of deadlifts and, and are really just pushing themselves and aiming to, to, to lift heavier and heavier weights. Every time you do that, the, 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 we talk about the abdominopelvic cylinder. So we've talked already about the pelvic floor, but defecation doesn't only occur in the pelvic floor. It, you use your paraspinal muscles, you use your oblique muscles, you use your rectus abdominis muscle, that's your six-pack muscle in your abdomen, and you use your diaphragm. It's an entire whole abdominal maneuver. When we lift weights, we essentially do the same thing. We contract our pelvic floor and we generate all this yeah. pressure. And over time doing that can can lead to a dysfunction of those muscles so those pelvic floor muscles get really really good at contracting because they're used to your lifting weights but then they're not so good at letting go and letting and allowing you to go to the toilet so you can end up with dysfunction but also just the sheer pressure itself can cause problems i mean i saw i saw a young man uh, a little while ago he was about 20 and he wanted to be a professional rugby player from the age of 12 or 13 he had gone to the gym the guy could barely fit in the room because he was so big and so muscular and um a really big guy uh, and he actually had full-blown rectal prolapse so when he went to the toilet his entire rectum uh, came out of his anus debilitating condition terrible for a young 20 year old man to have and and in my opinion this was just this occurred from just doing so many weights and pushing so hard for so long. So it's it look, it, exercise is very important. It's 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 important for health, it's important for mental health, but I'm just specifically talking about overdoing it and and really going crazy on the weights. It's not as as benign as you might think. Oh, well, it's, I'll let my daughter know. She's 26 and she's a gym junkie and her <laughs> weight her weight training on a daily basis has already caused so many um bodily health issues for her um, with her um, bones, periods, everything. So I will let her know. Yeah, look, it's it's a balance, you know. It's it's about life, you know. It's about it's about having a good life. It's not just about having a good a good pelvic floor. So you know, I say to people, you know, go out, go for runs, go for bike rides, go to the gym if you want, but just maybe modify a little bit what you do. Maybe don't do the deadlifts and squats so much. And if you do, just modify the weights. Go for higher reps and lower weights. So it's all about reducing that pressure during that what we call Valsalva maneuver. It's yeah. just a part of the problem. Yeah. Part of the problem, yeah. So the most prevalent types of pelvic floor dysfunction in older adults, I mean, you already mentioned briefly, it sounds like rectal dysfunction is the most prevalent by the sounds of that, but it, uh, it depends. It, in women, different to in men, I imagine. 
Yeah, look, I mean, that's probably my bias as a colorectal surgeon, obviously. You know, what I see is the um, the bowel-related problems. You know, we, we have, as as you said in your introduction, um, we set up this the centre, the Queensland Pelvic Floor Centre, which is in Bowen Hills, and, and the, you know, the, the model or the concept behind this is that is that what what happened before is that patients were, you know, if they had a bladder problem, they'll go and see this person. If they had a vaginal problem, they'll go and see this person. A bowel problem, they'll go and see this person. But actually, actually all these things are related. The These organs share the same supports. Uh, if you have vaginal prolapse, it's very likely you're going to have some kind of bowel problem and some kind of bladder problem and, and, and vice versa. So so probably, to be honest, the most common if you really if that's the your question the most common kind of pelvic floor complaint would probably be urinary incontinence would be mm. the most most common probably followed by vaginal prolapse so i'd say they are probably more common than uh than bowel symptoms but and and then probably of the bowel symptoms difficulties going to the toilet and consequent constipation is, is probably your next most common um followed by um, bowel control problems but as i say What's important to understand is that the majority of patients have a number of these complaints all at once. And, and that's why we set up this center, because you really need to holistically understand that and address the entire patient. And what we're trying to do is, is, is try to uh, improve the care overall for, for patients in Australia, because we have at the moment a bit of a what we call uni-compartmental approach and, um, and really Patients that we see who have a bladder problem, if you ask them about their bowels, you'll probably find they've got a bowel problem. They may have a bit of prolapse of their vagina as well. And the best treatment that they can have is to understand all of that and have a holistic, what we call multidisciplinary treatment. Wow, I love that. So how do we know we have a pelvic floor disorder? You know, there's obviously some early warning signs and we can tend to um, make excuses for them like anything else, which I know is how a lot of cancers don't get found until it's too late. You can always find an excuse for why why a symptom happened. But, yeah, yeah. Early, early warning signs. Yeah, look, basically, I guess understanding that these symptoms are, are not normal because, as I say, there's a lot of normalisation that goes on. I mean, to be honest, if you, if you see your GP and you said, look, I'm... Sometimes I have a bit of trouble going to the toilet. You know, probably quite a number of GPs may say, to you, "Oh, that's normal," or, or you know, there's there's or there's also a perception that there's not much that can be done uh, about these problems, and um, that it's best to just put up with them, or that it's um, that it's uh, it's a normal part of aging or a normal part of motherhood as well. Being a mum, that's okay to leak urine when you bounce on the trampoline. You know, it's not. It's not. These things are not normal, and there are things that can be done to. To improve them, so I mean, if you go through them, you know, leakage of urine, difficulties emptying your bladder, a sensation, a dragging sensation, or a bulge sensation in the vagina, or difficulties with intercourse, uh, a pain or discomfort uh, in the pelvic area or abdominal area, um, uh, and in terms of bowels, difficulty emptying your bowels. So you might feel, look, I, I feel like I need to go to the toilet, but I just can't adequately empty. Uh, or I don't get much of an urge to go, or I occasionally rush or leak, or leak uh, feces. There's a significant crossover um, with um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, and um, which I think is something that you, you maybe you were going to ask as well. And that so uh, people who don't empty their bowels properly will experience bloating because their colon is not emptied. So it fills and remains filled with, with gas and you have ongoing fermentation and creation of more gas. Uh, it's obviously full of feces as well. And, and as that pressure goes up, they may even experience pain in the abdomen as well, frequent pain, perhaps relieved if they're, if they're able to go to the toilet really well. But often these people have trouble going to the toilet well, which is the underlying problem. So, um, so all of these things are linked and, um, and I, it, it's a matter of of understanding that, and then you know finding a practitioner who's able to uh, understand these problems and and offer some kind of of treatment. And in particular, with the bowel, um, you talked about things like cancer before. Uh, I mean, bowel cancer is common, and um, and and that's something people often don't quite appreciate how common bowel cancer is. I mean, males in Australia have a one in ten chance of getting bowel cancer and females have a one in 13 chance of getting bowel cancer and these things are common and sometimes they these a cancer can present 
with some bleeding that you might think was hemorrhoids or with some of these symptoms that I've referred to. So uh, particularly if someone's never had a colonoscopy, um, if someone comes to us with these symptoms, we do need to think outside the square and think, could it be something further up in the bowel? And uh, we do occasionally pick up, you know, some of these more more serious diagnoses and um, that's important as well. Yeah, that's the funny thing with the bowel, isn't it? And what I was saying before, it's, you know, we can always find excuses for things that are happening sometimes. I was diagnosed with bowel cancer back in 2016, but I had no idea. Like I had decided Mm -hmm. to go on this big health kick. I went on this big juice detox. It was all I was having. So I had no pain, no discomfort, no rectal bleeding, none of that. But when my bowel motions changed, I went, oh, it's just because I'm juicing. Mm, there no you go. idea. No idea. Um, yeah, there you, so. Go. So, you know, a change in bowel habit alone is a um, a potential indication for for colonoscopy. I mean, you you can have bowel cancer for quite some time and and have no symptoms at all. Um, I've recently, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, treated a young man in his early forties who um, he just experienced a bit of rectal bleeding that he thought was hemorrhoids. And, uh, you know, it wasn't. It was actually bowel cancer. Um, so um, he- hemorrhoids are common and, and a bit of blood on the toilet paper is actually quite common. And, and Australians in particular uh, are very quick to write that off as, oh, it, I think this is just fresh red blood, so therefore it must be hemorrhoids. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. It simply means that the bleeding is probably coming from somewhere near the outlet. But it doesn't, it's not diagnostic. It doesn't mean it is hemorrhoids. It just means it could be, but it could be something else as well. And you, you know, you should be seeking medical attention for any of those, any of those new symptoms. And importantly, as well, participating in the bowel cancer screening program, uh, you know, which is free in Australia. And, and I only, know. So lucky we are. We are, but only 40% of Australians participate. So mm. 60% don't. So, you know, a lot of um, when I do talks and things like that, I, you know, I often just remind people, you know, that that probably one of the biggest changes we can make to improving bowel cancer outcomes in Australia is just to get people to actually do the test, which is available and free to them. Yeah, well, because we have, like everything, we have an attitude of it'll be right, it won't happen to me. So anyway, but you're right. Sure yeah, right. you're right. Yeah. Bowel cancer is a, a huge killer. So. Um, All right, so the causes, including psychological reasons, lifestyle choices, another big question because there's just no one answer to any of this. The two most common, though, if we just stick to what is common, um, would be about about half of what I see as obstetric trauma. So, um, and that that's specifically vaginal delivery. So, um, so cesarean section is a is very very uncommonly a cause of pelvic floor dysfunction. In those patients, there's often another cause of pelvic floor dysfunction, not specifically cesarean section itself or even being pregnant. So, it's specifically uh, vaginal delivery itself and the the trauma and the tearing to that supportive tissue and sometimes the anal anal sphincter as well. Um, uh, oh yeah, because so, uh, that's a lot of pushing, isn't it? Like so heavy, heavy pushing. pushing. And there's a lot of focus on on the anal sphincter as, as and we we know that's easy to measure. We can measure that, and um, uh, that's simply a marker because the actual amount of trauma happening in the pelvis is much greater than just at the anal sphincter level. It's um, as I talked about before. It's a lot of the the more the the connective tissue supports higher up in the pelvis that can lead to dysfunction later on. So that's about half. But let's talk about what else is there because there's a lot of other causes as well. So, like I talked about before, there's people who have what we call defecatory dysfunction. So in other words, they they're unable to effectively uh, empty their bowels, and when doing so, they exert excessive pressure. This is a fascinating disorder and a complex disorder, and there's many aspects to it. And, and I would also argue it's very much a Western disorder as well. You've got a group of people who have this problem ever since childhood. When you when you talk to those people, they'll usually give you a clue. They'll say, I remember having trouble when I was at school. I remember my mum giving me laxatives, my mum giving me suppositories. I remember having to see the doctor because I had abdominal pain or because I remember straining. They'll, they'll often tell you, and that that can be related to some people who just never quite learn how to poo properly and we don't really know why. But also uh, not everyone has a good childhood 
and and in this, these important years when we de- we're developing that reflex because it is a reflex, it can be upset as I referred to before by psychological distress. About fifteen percent of our patients will tell us about a history of childhood sexual abuse, uh, which unfortunately is actually consistent with the Australian rate of sexual abuse. Um, so this is very common, and it's not uncommon that that in, in one of these consultations, it'll be the first time someone has um, brought this up or spoken to a doctor about it, and importantly, um, the first time that they have had that experience when they were a child, say eight or nine years old or whatever, linked to their symptoms that they got now that they're 60 or, or 70, say. And, and that can be... Um, you know, I, I often have to pull out the, the the tissue paper during some of these consultations. May not be sexual abuse, maybe psychological abuse, maybe emotional abuse, or just a difficult or something terrible that happened to them. You know, their parents divorced and they got a lot of stress, or someone died, or just a traumatic event. And that can be something that occurred during childhood, but it can also be something that occurs during adulthood as well. Mm. And so, you know, so- you hear the stories. So, Chris, are you saying then that because of the abuse psychologically, there just becomes a holding of those muscles? Holding pattern. So they, they yeah. protect themselves subconsciously. Yeah. They're, they're not necessarily aware of it. They're often not. Literally yesterday I, I was talking to uh, a young, lovely girl who, you know, you wouldn't have guessed there was any problem. And I just started talking a bit about the possibilities of what kind of happened. And she said, can you please get me the, the tissue paper? And she just started bawling. And and she told me about her, the emotional abuse that she had from from her mother, and um, she told me how she always had migraines. She said she used to go to go to bed with a headache and wake up with a headache, and that she saw a physio when she was about twelve, and the physio said that her whole body was tense, and and he was trying to massage her, and and she was just he said she was the most tense person he had seen, and that tension can manifest as well subconsciously in that protective part of our body the very muscles that are also involved with controlling your bowels and controlling your bladder. And so that that you may not be aware at the time, but over years and years that becomes your normal, your normal way of going to the toilet, and you pay the price for that years and years later when that pressure has, has led to trouble. So it's a fascinating disorder. It's, it's not just that, it's also occupational, for example. So uh, people who have really stressful jobs, people who are in shift work, uh, the other day I was talking to a guy, he's a skipper on a boat. So he goes out on these on these long boat rides on super yachts and things like that. And they're constantly holding on and deferring going to the toilet. I, I can't go to the toilet because I'm too busy because I've got to do this or I've got to do that. And then they'll, they'll tell you how they, they go to the toilet in the morning and it takes them five seconds because they basically push like <laughs> crazy. Or, you know, people who work down in the mines or oh, people yeah, in construction where there's no toilets. Uh, so lack of availability of toilets. It's a really fast. You, you're here to 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 take a good history in this game. You have to listen to someone's whole life story, and and it may be their occupation, it may be social aspects, it may be childhood aspects or experiences that they've had. Um, it sometimes can be something like they had a terrible car accident when they were a teenager. They got smashed up, their pelvis was broken, their spine was broken, and they were stuck in hospital. And that affected, you know, acutely affected the way all those muscles worked. They may have injured their back or have chronic back pain and they're constantly holding on and protecting themselves and their paraspinal muscles. That can affect things as well. Wow. Um, so it can be related to surgery. Um, so, so you've got to have a really open mind and, um, uh, and, and all of these things contribute to, to defecatory dysfunction. And then there's people who, who say had surgery on their anus. So, um, they might've had uh, a terrible problem like an anal fistula or an anal fissure, which is a tear in the anus, uh, or some other kind of, of bowel surgery, for example, or they got bowel cancer, for example, and they had part of their rectum removed. And, um, that, when you remove someone's rectum, I always say to patients that I do that on, you know, this is going to affect your bowels forever and you're never quite going to toilet the same way because I'm taking away that beautiful reservoir and all its connections to your brain that, that you know, that, that you were born with and now you've got something different and um, it'll be okay but it won't be quite normal. And so all of these, there's all these factors, medications. Um, so some people... Uh, you know, excess coffee. So the coffee craze. People, some people drink, 
massive amounts of coffee or they or they drink um they have a huge amount of artificial sweetener so they drink a huge amount of diet drinks or they add a lot of artificial sweetener to their coffee or tea artificial sweetener has sorbitol in it it's a sweetener but it also goes right through you and um, can actually lead to fecal incontinence of its own accord so wow okay yeah. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. Oh, I hope everybody's going to be listening to this. That that's incredible. One cup of coffee a day is okay. <laughs> One cup, yeah, we're all, we're all entitled to our coffee a day. I'm more everything in moderation. <laughs> everything in moderation. You just you do get the odd people who they just become total addicts and and just by sometimes simple things like reducing coffee or addressing these simple things can make a, a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and as far as, you know, we were talking earlier about how often you actually go to the toilet to empty your bowels, what mm. is normal? Because I know you don't have to go every day. A lot of people think you do. What's, what's yeah, okay? Oh, I, it's funny you say that. So if you, if you read, if you picked up any medical textbook, uh, it will say that normal is about three times a week to three times a day. Uh, from from experience and, and uh, being in this field and listening to patients, I would actually say the opposite. I'd actually say going once a day is is actually more normal and outside that is less normal. If, if someone's going three, four times a day, what I usually would say is they're probably not going very well uh, or they, they wouldn't need to go so many times. Uh, some people who go only, to, you know, once or twice a week, it may be okay for them for a period of time, but after a few years or a few decades, they may end up running into trouble and end up see, needing to see someone like us at uh, Queensland pelvic floor. So uh, I, I'm actually the more the, the more experienced I've become, the more I think once a day is normal. Yeah, and so with um, for women who haven't delivered yes. um, babies or haven't had babies, if they're getting prolapse or yes. or incontinence, what would be yes. the causes of that? Same like as I, I know people know exercise, you know, they're not gym junkies. Nothing. No. So definitely so so the same as in men. So so the most likely cause is that is excess pressures. So you've got to try to talk, think about all the things that I just talked about before. What in their life has led to them pushing so hard or generating so much pressure that they've put their organs under such pressure that they're now displaced and coming out of them or internally prolapsing. A small percentage of patients may have what we call a connective tissue disorder. And the most common of those is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but there are there are others. Those patients genetically may be more likely to develop prolapse, more likely to develop hernias, for example, because their what we call collagen or their, their connective tissue is more stretchy or weaker than others. There, there is... Um, a variation amongst mm. people in terms of how good our collagen is. There's different types, but it's very unlikely that that will occur without the pressure that accompanies it. Is it occurred because most likely defecatory dysfunction? They, they they're, they're straining too much. Maybe not now, but maybe earlier in their life, or an occupational thing that I talked about before: heavy lifting, manual labour, all of these kind of things that that and are day long term standing. Long term, yeah, that's right. Gravity. Yes. Because um, it, now that I think of it, the person I'm thinking of, she was uh, a hairdresser. They stand okay. all day long, yes. and if they're very yes. busy, they can hold their bladder all day as well. So, yes. yeah, yep. okay, it's coming, it's coming exactly. together now. I get it. <laughs> yep. There's always sometimes it takes a bit of time. It's not till, till towards the end of the consultation you're suddenly that'll be your your, your light bulb moment, and and you'll go ah that that they'll tell you the key thing that 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 sort of unlocks it all. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not always immediately apparent. Yeah. And so as far as preventing it, I, mm. I guess, well, a, a lot of the times we've sort of talked about things that have happened over the lifetime, so mm. there's no real way of preventing it now that we are already older. <laughs> yeah. But we, yeah. we can make it worse, like you say, with the amount of coffee, straining, um, having yeah. artificial sweetener, anything yeah. else. Like, what about alcohol? Because I, I noticed, you know, alcohol is a muscle relaxant, and I yeah. noticed I can actually get some leakage if I've had too many glasses of wine in a night. So, yeah. 
No, like that's that. quite common. That yeah. is, it's quite common. We do see though we do see those people. So alcohol in itself certainly can um can lead to um, patients having having urgency. Often they'll tell you it comes on after a big night. You know, I had a big night. <laughs> uh, interestingly, also you'll get the patients who say their hemorrhoids flare uh, after yeah. a big night on, on the alcohol. So um, you know, in in general, I just advise what what everyone would say, which is just to sort of drink in moderation. In in Australia, the current guidelines are ten units. If you know, if you understand units of alcohol per week. Uh, and so, and so, you you do find the odd patient where clearly their symptoms are are related to having a big night on the grog, and um, and sometimes some advice about that explaining it, and and some adjustments can can make a difference. So that is a that is a component. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's you know as far as preventing you know once we get to fifty and beyond. Just the uh, just thing- the way we sit on the toilet and what have you. I I imagine. Yeah, so, so toileting technique is, is a big part, and toileting technique is is what um, our specialist pelvic floor physiotherapists uh, really aim to optimise. And they, they do much more than that. That They look at the entire whole lifestyle way you go about going to the toilet, when you go to the toilet, uh, how you build it into your day, and then stool consistency is very important as well. So so if you if you're passing small hard rocks what we call bristol type one stool so those small hard rocks the best rectum in the world is going to struggle with them to get them out because you just got to generate so much pressure to get them out at the same time if you if your stool is always liquid um it's going to be harder to hold on so what we're what we're aiming for is is a a fairly bulked but completely soft stool that is therefore more easy to to pass and and one of the ways that that anyone can can achieve that uh, or at least help is fiber supplementation so having plenty of of mainly soluble fiber in the diet and then potentially adding a supplement and, and you know the most simple things or that are common in Australia would be psyllium husks uh, they're fairly easy to obtain um there are there are it's easy to buy in a chemist the the Brands include Metamucil and Benefiber. These are cheap. They can come in capsule form. They come in sachet form. And what what I often say to patients is if everyone in the world had psyllium husks every day, I would have less work. And so these are simple things. And and, uh, you might just need to take a tablespoon or two, sorry, a teaspoon or two twice a day of psyllium husk, uh, have a high-fiber diet, healthy eating, and... um, uh, sometimes seeing a specialist pelvic floor physiotherapist if you have any trouble for some pointers on on how to go about going to the toilet can make a big difference. So the physiotherapist, they really try to restore normal. So you may think what you're doing is right, but there, there may be things that can be done to make it a more coordinated and a less less pressure-inducing manoeuvre. Yeah. And that's what they do. And, uh, and they can make a huge difference. Virtually all of our patients that we see are referred to a specialist physiotherapist. And to be honest, the majority of patients, that's all they need. Uh, They don't need really to see a specialist surgeon like me. Um, They certainly majority don't need surgery. Uh, We reserve that for patients where uh, we've really maximized all of those simple things and the patient is still significantly bothered uh, and troubled, then we may consider it. Yeah, I, I would never have thought, like I've realised that in um, doing the research now, um, I wouldn't have thought of seeing a physiotherapist about the pelvic floor issue, but that makes yeah. perfect sense. And I think I read somewhere that with proper pelvic floor exercises, you can, you know, solve about 85% of your pelvic floor issues. Yeah. That that's that's yeah, like I say that that's absolutely right. So, so uh, physiotherapist, dietitian. Uh, we we also have a very excellent dietitian at our centre. So a, a dietitian who understands these disorders and and basic advice that we've talked about is the is all that the majority of patients need. What's important to to just to jump in there to talk a bit about pelvic floor exercises mm-hmm. is that. A lot of the time when I see a patient, I'll say, look, I think, you know, you would benefit from seeing a, a pelvic floor physiotherapist. And a lot of them say, oh, no, no, I, I know how to do my exercises. And what's very important to understand there is, is actually not exercises that 
what it, it, that that the physiotherapist will do. It's about restoring that normal coordination. And a lot of that is actually the opposite of exercises. It's actually teaching patients to relax and open their anus. And a lot of that involves relaxation of the pelvic floor. Sometimes the problem is actually that someone's pelvic floor is too tight uh, or too strong. And mm. sometimes those patients might say to you, well, I, you know, I've been doing my pelvic floor exercises every day for the last 20 years. And I say, yes, I know that's the problem. That's the problem. We actually need you now to learn how to bulge your abdomen and how to let those muscles let go so that you can actually go to the toilet. So, um, so these are these physiotherapists are, are, are highly trained, real experts. They've all undergone further training in pelvic floor physiotherapy, and then on top of that, further training in defecatory physiotherapy uh, to to uh, be able to give really top notch advice. And often, patients will come back to me amazed, uh, just saying, I can't believe that I was doing it wrong all these years and mm. all I needed to do was see this physiotherapist and and I, I already feel a whole lot better in my whole self for being able to toilet better. So. Yeah, because the, the focus has been on making a strong pelvic floor rather than a healthy okay. pelvic floor, so there is a difference, and, yes. and doing it wrong as well because I think um, most of us seem to get a misunderstanding about how the Kegels work, but we're, um, what is it? Pull up, don't push out. We're pushing yes. out instead of pulling up. So um, well, yeah, Kegels are very effective. I don't want to do away with that. Kegels are very effective if you've just had a baby. So, so post obstetric, absolutely. That, that is the right thing to do. It's about recovering from the, the trauma of vaginal delivery and, and re recruiting those muscles and getting them strong again. But we're talking about quite something quite different. Where you know we're mm. talking about patients who who are having trouble at another time in their life where Kegels may not be the right thing to do necessarily. It, it may be, but it may not be equally. So it's important to be assessed and, and have that understood. Yeah. So at, at what point does surgical intervention get considered as your only option? Because that, that's always a, a last mm. call, isn't it? Going under yeah. a knife. Yeah. Uh, the only time that surgery would be the only option is in someone who has an absolutely overt indication. So, for example, very occasionally someone will come to me with just a frank rectal prolapse. So their rectum's hanging outside, their anus. Um, most of the time it's incredibly distressing, it's leaking, it's bleeding. That patient needs surgery. There's no, there's nothing else that's going to that's gonna help them. Equally, someone with a, an advanced severe vaginal prolapse that would be someone where it may be that um that surgery is is in their best interest to have up front everyone else surgery is reserved uh for patients who have significant troubling symptoms having absolutely maximized and failed all what we call non-operative therapies even then it's never their only option what I say to patients is you have to buy the operation off me. I'm not going to sell it to you. There are things I can do, but everything has pros and cons. You know, I'm, an, I'm a surgeon, so that's what I do, but everything I do has some degree of risk because it involves an anesthetic, a general anesthetic usually, and mm. doing something to you. I don't offer patients surgery unless I think it's highly likely. I can look them in the eye and I think it's highly likely that I'm going to give them something that they're looking for, an improvement in, in, in the way they can go to the toilet, an improvement in their leakage or their incontinence. And there's things that we can do that are that are fairly low risk. And then there's there's more, more you know, invasive procedures. And it's a balance. So the patient's ultimately got to decide how troubled am I with these symptoms and am I prepared to take the risk of surgery for the chance that it that it makes me better. And it's not guaranteed because really the barometer of success is how someone feels. And so, you know, we can't guarantee that. Um, but but certainly uh, you can have amazing results when you choose the right procedure for the right patient at the right time. You know, we've had patients crying and hugging us because they're so happy that they're, they're not incontinent anymore, you know, and, and, yeah. and that's very, very satisfying. But it's all about that. That's, I think, why we need that multidisciplinary uh, center, you know, we have a, a multidisciplinary meeting where we will discuss uh, some cases where, you know, I, I want we want all of us in one room, and we have the physios and the dietitian, and we have the 
urogynecologist and the gastroenterologist and the surgeon, the colorectal surgeon, and we all all you know um, brainstorm about what might be best or what other options there are for for that patient to make their life better. So it's all about picking picking the right time, and um, uh, there's always options. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. I'm I'm so excited that I'm in Brisbane and and near you. So if I ever do have terrible uh, pelvic floor issues, I'll uh, I'll be jumping in there. So. And what help. about if uh, if people are heading down the surgery track? Uh, how can they manage pain? Well, mm-hmm. it, even without surgery, is is there pain associated with pelvic floor dysfunction? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because something I, I haven't mentioned yet, um, which is another factor, um, it, it is pain, and in particular, it's worth mentioning endometriosis. Um, endometriosis is, is is common, very common. Ten percent. Is that of a pelvic pain. floor issue? Well, it's related to pelvic floor okay. issues. Yeah. So, so um, having endometriosis is associated with pain, uh, painful periods, sometimes severe debilitating pain and, and that pain as you know can go on for years and years many of these patients have pain for years and years before they're even diagnosed with endometriosis and that constant monthly pain and what we call chronic pain or ongoing pain can sensitize the pelvis and uh. you can see a gynecologist and an endometriosis expert you can have endometriosis surgery have it all excised successfully but not be perfect afterwards. You, you may well be a lot better. Sure, your, your pain is a lot better. It's very effective surgery, but you may be left, unfortunately, with the consequences of that, those years of pain and sensitization. You may be left with ongoing pain. You may be left with, with sensitivity in your bowel, which can lead to dysfunction later on as well. Uh, sometimes Gosh. patients can develop sensitivity and and. and a pain in their pelvis that's perhaps driven as well by PTSD, anxiety, psychological distress. Uh, sometimes they may have had some pathology in their pelvis. They may have needed surgery. They may have had some some horrible infection. Uh, they may be having recurrent tears in their anus or fissures, which which are very painful. Uh, or they may be having recurrent hemorrhoidal uh, crises, which can be also painful. And sometimes these things can set up for for persisting pain. Uh, there are things that these are difficult. There are difficult problems. There are things that can be done. However, um, our specialist physiotherapists can try to take away the hypertonicity, the spasm in the muscles with internal massage that is associated with this pain and sort of down ramp pain that way. We can improve pain by improving bowel emptying. Uh, sometimes we use special suppositories or creams that can that, that can help as well. Um, so, so, and sometimes we involve a chronic pain specialist so that there are actually specialists who only deal with chronic pain and, and may even have an interest in pelvic pain. And there's a number of interventions, nerve blocks, infusions, um, all kinds of various things that can be done to improve pain medications. Um, so, um, it, it's, it, it is complex, but again, there's the whole area is complex and, um, and it's about, understanding the complexity which is part of its fascination and and um there's always things that you can do to make a big difference to to people with pain as well in terms of pain after surgery i mean that that's more straightforward to be honest i mean surgery you know i always say to patients look there will be some pain it's not going to be a painless surgery but um you know we have specialist anesthetists and and uh painkillers and all kinds of ways we can you can press a button and it gives you a, a shot of morphine or Mm. Uh, patches, medications. Uh, there's all kinds of ways we can manage that. That that's easier. It's more the 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 persisting pain that's more difficult. Yeah, and mm. I mean even then medications. I mean it, overuse of medications can have all sorts of other mm. issues as well associated with them, can't they? So yeah, oh, if you can get yeah. pain under control any yeah. other way. Oh, I, I've just never lived with pain myself, so I I just. Mm can only imagine what it's like for people. So I feel sorry for them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So long-term outcomes of treatment for pelvic mm. floor dysfunction, what, what kind really, of follow-up care is typically required? Yeah, really important question. Thanks for that. So, um, look, what, what I say is that, you know, whatever we do in your pelvis to try to improve things, 
it, it, it it's not we don't really have a way currently of putting everything back how it was when you were 10 or when you were 20 or when you know you were you were much younger everything we do is just using what we have none none, none of it's perfect uh, it's likely that um, there may still be some symptoms maybe that we need to manage and and I it's important to set expectations right about what 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 a patient is likely to experience so many patients the vast majority who who have the right surgery at the right time do experience a significant benefit and improvement uh, but over time and over years and years and years slowly slowly that benefit uh, may wane and um and it, it is likely over time particularly if that patient goes back to straining pushing hard having hard stool not complying with um with the other treatment that their their problem may return earlier um, but but there is what I usually I don't like the word fix or the word cure because I don't believe that's what we do. Uh, we we it, this is a, a chronic like a chronic disease and we make quality of life better with surgery and we try to make that benefit last as long as possible with all the things that we do. But it's not a cure and it won't last forever. Um, in in, in um, we we have a research unit in in the public hospital that I work in in Brisbane. Uh, QE2 hospital and uh, we actually everyone we operate on we actually bring back every year and we get them to fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires relating to quality of life and symptoms so that we can plot over time what actually happens some of our patients we've now been following for 10 years and um, and so you know I can tell you that you know the majority of patients remain better than they were before the surgery but you can see the odd person getting a problem come back over time uh, and so it's important to explain that absolutely beforehand that uh, th- this this is likely to happen over a long period of time. Yeah. And and when you sort of ask them, well, what have you been doing? So they might have been straining and doing all those yeah. things. People have a habit of uh, not telling the truth about what they've been doing sometimes. So, you know, no matter what age we are, we don't want to get into trouble for being no, naughty right. and doing the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's hard. Everyone's got to get on with their life and, and do what they got to do. And, and it's hard to keep on top of everything. So, um, you know, get to all the appointments and um, uh, always remember to take your medication. That's yeah. hard. We know we, it's a real life world that we live in, and uh, we understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what can clients expect from a consultation if, if you can even get them in there? I imagine there's a lot of people that still even don't go and see anyone about it, particularly if it's not too bad yet, because they're embarrassed to talk about it. Yeah, I mean that's why we that's why I'm pleased to be doing this talk with you, and you know we are trying to get the the word out there that that a it's common, b you're not alone. See, uh, there are actually things that can be done. There are people who are interested. There are people who care, and and um, there are people who can make a difference to your life. Mm. Um, so you know, with with our our clinic uh, at Queensland Pelvic Floor, um, we we have a number of ways it can be done. But most patients will start by seeing our our nurse our, our nurse practitioner. So we have a nurse practitioner who's been in this field for many many years. Uh, she's very experienced, and and people love seeing her. And um, and uh, she'll take have a chat with you, take a history, do a few basic tests to start with. It may be related to your to your bladder, maybe related to your bowel or prolapse, and then start some some initial what we talked about before. Some basic advice might be fiber, might be some medication, might be some lifestyle changes. Uh, maybe involve a pelvic floor physiotherapist most of the time. Maybe involve a dietitian, and then and then follow up, and and potentially you know maybe involve uh, a specialist as well if needed. Um, you know some patients prefer to see a specialist first, and and we're very happy to do that. And um, you know most of the patients I see, I talk about all of these basic things, and um, we start off on a on a path of, of non-operative therapy. And as I say, the majority of them get better that way. It's all about, we try to keep it all in one house. And, and so that we, you come in and you get treated and, and you'll be followed up. And, um, and then, you know, um, it's a chronic disease. It's not like a one-stop shop. It's not like taking your gallbladder out. You know, you come in, mm. you have a gallbladder problem, we take it out, you're good. That's, you don't need follow-up. These patients all need to be followed up, and that, that's what that's what we're we understand that, and that's what we're about. Wow! Do you know if you're the only um, multidisciplinary centre that is around? We're, we're as far as we know, we're the only centre in 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 Brisbane, um, in 
providing this this level of multidisciplinary care. Um, you know, we started off by setting up a service in public. That was about ten years ago uh, at QB2 Hospital, and, and um, you know, we could see it was it it there's it, just we were just flooded with referrals because people could see that it was what what this this group of patients need, and and um, and then we wanted to do the same thing uh, for our private patients as well, and. Um, uh, so you know, we hope that the model grows. Uh, I think it's 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 difficult to do and to set up, but it's it's actually what people need. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's wonderful, just wonderful. Well, Chris, that has just been so informative. I'm sure everyone's going to get a lot out of it. And like you say, it's um, there is more talk about this whole subject now, so um, it's becoming really common and less embarrassing to talk about. And um, not a sexy topic, but an interesting topic. So before we say goodbye, is there just one piece of advice you would give to someone who's experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction? You're not alone. And um, there are people out there who can help you. Uh, and there are things that can be done. I'm sure there are things that can be done that, that are gonna make your life better. Mm-hmm.